This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you stories from where we broadcast, and that's the small town of Oxford, Mississippi. And this one comes from a student of the University of Mississippi, Aubrey Riggle. Two months away from graduating high school with a completely clean record, I get put on room suspension. It started with the most rash decision and easily one of the best decisions I have ever made. I bought a puppy. My roommate Macy and I went to Mississippi School of the Arts, a residential magnet school in South Mississippi, and were on the way to Jackson, Mississippi to a concert. We were stopping by Walmart for snacks, but got distracted by a cardboard sign, sloppily written in Sharpie, puppies for sale. Of course, as any two 17-year-old girls would, we stopped to pet the puppies, which a little old woman had in a box in the back of her SUV. They were $400. Three small balls of fur bounced around in the box. Any of the six-week-old Shih Tzus could have fit into the palm of my hand. I reached down to pet the only brown one, who started biting my fingers. I swooned, collecting him into my arms and pleading to my roommate, I need him. We could sneak him into our dorm room, she proposed, originally as a joke, but I took it as approval. I mean, within the last year alone, we had safely hidden a hamster cage and a fishbowl in there already. How much harder could a puppy be? I only had $70 left in my bank account from a job I'd worked over winter break. So I called my mom. $400 is a lot of money, she said, along with a string of other oppositions. Your dad would never agree. You're about to go to college. But he's so cute, mom. I'm at your sister's soccer game. Call me later. She hung up before I could even offer that after working this upcoming summer, I would be able to pay her back. I'm getting this dog today. Please don't sell him, I told the breeder. She agreed, reluctantly, but turned away other potential customers because of my claim on that little brown ball of fluff. My roommate and I devised a plan. The banks were closed, but she had some blank checks from her grandma. To my complete surprise, her grandma agreed, and Macy wrote me a check on loan for $400. Our disbelief turned to excitement. And heads held high, we triumphantly marched back to the breeder. Fed up with our shenanigans, her forehead furrowed and she grunted. I can't take a personal check. Please, ma'am, I promise it's in there. It's my grandma's account, Macy bargained. The breeder actually called her grandma to confirm and agreed saying, fine, but give me your phone numbers and addresses. We scribbled down our contact info onto the check and I spent my last $70 on a crate collar, and a bag of dog food five times the size of my dog. We decided to skip the concert to figure out just how we would sneak the puppy past security and into our dorm room. We found a cardboard box, tucked him inside, and crossed our fingers. We're going to get caught, I thought as we snuck into the building. Dog supplies and hidden puppy in tow. My heart beat fast and my hands trembled but security didn't even look up as we passed by. After safely making it back to our dorm room, we summoned our best friends in the hallway to come meet him. Each teenage girl melted over our illicit roommate as we excitedly recounted our rule-breaking. Our contraband needed a name, 
And after hours of playtime and contemplating, we called him Rebel. Our news was like wildfire, spreading through all seven floors of our dorm hall. I heard, do you really have a dog in your room? At least once per class period. My friends often came by to play with the hamster already, but now every day after the last school bell rang, like mosquitoes to light, a plethora of teenage girls, some who I barely knew, came to see Rebel. For a whole week, Rebel stayed in his crate quietly while I was in class, slept in my bed with me at night, and even got snuck on and off campus inside my purse for walks. Despite our nightly room checks by the floor mom, we just put Rebel in the bathroom, and no one noticed our secret zoo. It seemed we were in the clear. Aubrey Riggle, please come to the principal's office. The school secretary's voice rattled over the intercom. In a cold sweat, I felt the eyes of all of my classmates turn to me. Twelve years of grade school under my belt, and I had never been called to the principal's office until now. My principal, a rosy-cheeked woman with round hips that spilled over the sides of her rolling chair, looked at me squarely across her desk. Aubrey, we found a dog in your dorm room. They caught me. Unsuccessfully controlling my nervous laughter, I asked, did you find the hamster and fish too? She laughed, crying me for more of an explanation. To my disbelief, much more amused than angry. I've had them for about a week. A lady was selling them in the Walmart parking lot. I couldn't say no. The dog's gotta go today, she said with a chuckle. But there was no way I could make the five-hour drive home and back for school the next day. Unable to get rid of Rebel, the school gave him to the dance teacher till next weekend. Placed on room suspension, I was defeated. After my punishment was doled out, my principal, the executive director, and the curious school secretary escorted me to my room to remove Rebel. Even though I was in trouble, my principal cooed at him as he climbed into her lap and licked her face. So what do I need to do about the hamster and fish? I asked her. Her brief look of shock erupted into wild laughter. I thought you were joking. The hamster and fish were placed in the nurse's office until I returned home to my parents, who were not happy about our household's unexpected additions or the $400 check they now had to mail to Macy's grandma. Several weeks later, Rebel was allowed, this time with the school's permission, to be my escort to senior prom. He was a local celebrity, and my friends and I took turns spinning him around on the dance floor. Now... Four years later, I have collected many more memories with Rebel, and our memory at Mississippi School of the Arts has not faded, as administrators still tell our story to every new class as a precautionary tale. And thank you, Arby Riggle, for that story. Her story, Rebel's story, and a great pet story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories, and it's time for our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries. More than 67,000 people across America are employed by Coke, and there's a good chance that their work intersects with your own story in some way. The great folks at Coke make products that help improve medical devices, consumer electronics, vehicle safety, fabrics for clothing, filtration for clean water, and innovations for popular household brands. In the process, they're creating jobs and opening paths to opportunity for everyone to create their own American story. Learn more about Coke's incredible work at CokeIndustries.com. That's CokeIndustries.com, K-O-C-H. And here's Joey Cortez with today's story. The classes I teach, I tell the kids all the time, I say, hey, here's the thing. If you're tired and you need to sleep, like sleep in my class. If you got to take a call, take a call in my class. Like my job as a teacher and as an educator is to make you not want to do that. My job is to make you, if you're tired, is to wake you up. We're not going to take your phones. My job as an educator is to capture your attention every day. And if I'm not doing that, then I guess I'm doing something wrong because kids are going to be kids. And if you can provide something of value to them every day, then I think, I think they appreciate that. I think they love doing it. You're listening to one of the most inspiring educators in America, Zach Cleaver. I teach at Campus High School in Hayesville, Kansas. Been here 10 years. I teach a variety of business classes. Now I'm the head of the business department here. Whenever I started, I taught YEK. Youth Entrepreneurs of Kansas, which was founded by Charles and Liz Koch of Koch Industries to help prepare children for success in the workplace and in life. It is now in 26 states and is known as YE, Youth Entrepreneurs. I've had so many kids go through my program and benefit from it, and they would not have these opportunities if not for YEK. I've been, I've been to other schools that have just an entrepreneurship program, and it is nothing compared to what the opportunities that our kids have here. So I had some awesome kids one day, and we would always talk about hypothetical business. Like, if you were going to start a business in the school, what would it be? And one day, one of my YEK kids said, you know, Cleaver, you always talk about, you know, don't deal in hypotheticals. Deal in now. Deal in, you know, deal in what you can do. You know, take advantage of situations. Show value. And he said, why don't we just start a business at the school? And I said, all right. People in Hayesville love, we don't actually have a coffee shop in Hayesville. We have a McDonald's. Students used to drive actually probably about 15 minutes to a Starbucks to go get coffee in the morning. And they would come back to school and be late. You'd always see kids walking in and at the tardy desk and they'd all have Starbucks drinks. And so the students thought, why not bring the coffee to them? I got 20 YAK kids together and they actually wrote the business plan for the coffee shop, pitched it to our school board, got a $50,000 loan to start it, and it's been running for five years, and it generates around $45,000 a year in sales. We have people from the community come in a lot, and we have people from other schools come in, and we actually saw a decrease by 20% in tardiness whenever we added the coffee shop. And we're saving kids money. Our drinks are not near expensive. We do a lot of things. You know, We don't have the overhead that other people have. And then the best part is, we get around $15,000 a year to charitable things in school. So they're actually giving back to their community in school for kids, you know, it's amazing. 
So it is an incredible story of how kids, you know, took what they learned in YAK, wrote a business plan, pitched it, did all that, and accomplished something awesome that now is, you know, a staple of campus high school. The kids started this coffee shop, worked there, and made money. But now what? What would they do with that money? One thing we talked about in our business department was kids need financial literacy and they're just not getting it. And we, you know, kids are intimidated by banks. Kids are intimidated to go into a bank and open a checking account or open a savings account. I mean, and if you think about it, if you, you know, if you didn't get walking with your parents, I told kids, I said, I walked in with my parents and started one. So I probably would have been intimidated as well. Like, I don't know how, you know, I don't know how that works. And so we talked to a local bank, a Valley State Bank here in uh, Wichita, and they were big supporters of campus high school. And I, you know, we pitched our idea. We said, hey, you know, we have a, we have a student-ran coffee shop. What we want to do is we want to literally put a bank in our school, a bank branch. I don't want it to be false or anything. I want it to be an actual bank branch. And I want kids to be the interns that run it. And I want them to take the exact test that your guys take. And after that, you know, after they're done with us, they should be able to go get a job with you guys. And so we set up a program that they are legitimate bank tellers. And we currently, right now, we have around 500 student accounts. So 500 kids who would not have probably a bank account have set up an account. And it is a safe, free account. So it costs, you know, you have to have $1 to set it up and your student ID. There's no overdrafts. So kids feel safe about it. You know, parents feel safe about it. It's a great learning experience. And then our kids, our bank tellers, actually go around and teach financial literacy to other kids, mostly freshmen and sophomores, about why you want to save, why you want to do this, you know. And then we actually teach some seniors and juniors about uh, interest rate loans and credit cards and student loans. So whenever they leave high school, hopefully they're a little more prepared. And then last thing about the bank, the coolest part, is these kids, so we've had, this will be our third year, so we have had 24 uh, interns, right? Every intern that has wanted to get a job in a bank in college or after has got that job. So we have 18 kids. 18 of our interns right now are actually working in a bank part-time or full-time. And one of them is actually a bank manager, which is amazing. So, I mean, it, it is a truly amazing program that has impacted our student lives at Campus High School especially, but are also, you know, around the nation. And then Zach would have an opportunity to help another group of people in need of skills training. Prison reform, especially in education, we've been discussing it for a while, and I've heard lots of people discussing it from the top of YEK, even in Coke Industries and even in other businesses. And it's something I've been really passionate about. My family, I've never uh, had a direct experience with that, but I've seen it affect a lot of my friends and a lot of my students. I've always wondered what impact I could have on it, and sure enough, the opportunity came about that YEK talked to me one day and said, hey, we're thinking about having a teacher go into the El Dorado Detention Center and, you know, start teaching YEK, and so they kind of opened it up, and there wasn't a lot of volunteers, and so I think I was the only one that actually said, yeah, I'm, I'm in, I want to do it, so I think that's how it really uh, began. They house, they house everybody. I mean, convicted felons. They have people that are, are lifers, so people that are not going to get out of prison. Mass murderers are there. Uh, BTK's there. He's a serial killer from Wichita. And the security is way up. I mean, there's three levels of fences. Each one of them has crazy barbed wire. They're touch sensitive, so if they get touched, they they sends off a sensor. There's armed guards and towers. Like, it is, intim- it is an intimidating 
experience. There is actually a training that they send you to that all volunteers have to go through, and it's pretty intense. I mean, they do not sugarcoat it at all. And you're talking to you know people that have seen all aspects of that prison, the good and the bad. They're telling you how much of an impact you can have positively, but they're also warning you about what can go what can go wrong. You know, sexual assault's a big one. You're dealing with people that haven't, you know, had human touch and intimacy in a long time and that lots of things get wound up. And it's not only sexual assault with each other, it's sexual assault against other people and people that come in. And so that was that was one big thing is like you can't be alone. You know, you don't want to ever be alone. And so you always want to be within eye contact with, with, with one of the guards. They walked me around. They showed me the whole prison. They showed me where these guys stay, their commons area. And again, there was not a lot of person-to-person interaction that I was seeing. There was a lot of people sitting by themselves. There was a lot of people reading. There was a lot of people sitting in their, in their cells. So I think that in prison, if you don't have a passion for something, if you don't have something that drives you, and something that you can actually internally focus on, I feel like it's a very, very lonely, monotonous, hard place to survive and to come out at the end and be able to be a productive member of society. I met one of the students beforehand, and he actually worked in the prison library. He asked me so many questions that first day whenever I met him. I've I've probably met him in a 12-minute period, and I bet he asked me 200 questions about what the class was going to be. So I knew how excited he was, and you could tell how excited he was. And in my head, I was thinking, wow, if all 12 of these guys are as excited as he is, this class is going to be fantastic. Because in high school, yes, kids are really excited to take my classes. But at the same point, some kids are not very excited to go to school. So some kids view school as a chore. These guys were viewing this class as an opportunity. And we've been listening to Zach Cleaver, and this is our Opportunity America series brought to us by the great folks at Coke Industries. And when we return, more with Zach and more with a story you can copy in a school district near you. This is Our American Story. continue with our American stories and our Opportunity America series brought to us by the great folks at Coke Industries. And now we return to a remarkable teacher, Zach Cleaver, and his story. I had to drive 45 minutes to get to the El Dorado prison. And so the drive there, you know, you start running through all the stuff in your head of that they talked about, you know, in your training. And I think I called my wife probably three or four times uh, on the way there and was like, you know, I don't know if I can do this. She's like, you can do this. You're a good teacher. You want to do this. That was the main thing. You know, you have the best intentions. You you can do this. I pulled into the prison. I got out of my car and I'm, I'm not going to lie, I threw up because I was so nervous. I threw up. I looked at the prison and I said, all right, well, let's go do this. And the, the first, you know, you're, you're telling these, you know, you're trying to be social. You're trying to be nice. 
I, I met one of the inmates beforehand, one of the inmates that I would be teaching and nice guy. So that was, that was good. And, you know, very interested, very willing to take the class. They told me how much demand was in the class. So I knew the guys wanted to be there. And so the first day I looked at the prison guard and I said, Hey, I know we talked about the fact that we cannot actually touch the inmates and that that is a major prison rule. I said, I really, really think it'd be beneficial if I shook their hands whenever they come in. I do, I do that with my students. You do that whenever you greet people. I said, I really like to do that. And he said, all right, I mean, he said, you can, you can try. And so the first inmate comes up and I hold out my hand and this guy looked at me like I, you know, had, you know, poison in my hand. And he kind of looked at the prison guard and the guard said, yeah, you can shake his hand. And I shook his hand and it, I've never shaken someone's hand to where they looked like they actually appreciated it. And this man did. And I think it made the class run 10 times smoother because one, it humanized me and they knew that I wasn't there just for whatever reason. I wasn't there just because the prison wanted me to be there. I was there because I genuinely wanted to be there and I wasn't going to judge them. And I don't think they've had a lot of human interaction like that, positive human interaction. And for us to start off the day on that note, really set the tone for the class and for the next four weeks. For basically the first couple weeks, we do a lot of talking about value. Uh, what value do you have? What value do we have in others? Uh, the next couple weeks is we do a lot of networking. How do you work with one another? How do you work with people? How do you meet people? How do you greet people? What value can you bring? How do you show people what value you can create? Then we really start to delve into passion. What passion do you have? You know, if what passion do you have in business? What passion do you have in life? And so that's where the kind of the Shark Tank pitch comes. Normally in a high school environment, we have them write a business plan and then they pitch it. So they actually go through, they find their passion, they write the plan, and then they pitch it to a panel of judges in Shark Tank fashion. They have limited resources. So the research was very hard. So we had to go based off of like either what they knew, what I knew, or what the prison guards knew. That was kind of harder, but it still, I think, was ultra productive. So what we did instead was we had them make trifolds and we had them make, if you could start any business today, what business would you start? And unlike whenever we do with high schools where I'm like, okay, you need to research your target area. You need to research the demographics and stuff like that. It was more based off of them. What passions do you have? What do you know? Like, what do you like to do? And the trifolds were amazing. They put so much effort into these trifolds. The prison guards let them take it back to their cells, which is a big, big thing and work on it. So I came back the following week and these try, uh, I mean, just pure shock. I was like, wow, guys, this is, this is amazing. The passion and the effort that they put into these trifolds and into the thought of their business and what they want to do. You could tell they have spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I feel like they were just wanting someone to ask them, Hey, what do you like to do? They thought about things that they are really good at that. I would never know. So Carlos, the guy that is, going to be in prison the rest of his life, been in since 1987, does bead work. And it's awesome. I mean, it is amazing, amazing bead work. And so he actually brought out some stuff that he has done that's in his cell and had it kind of on his trifold. And the other prisoners were in shock. They were like, man, I had no idea you could do this. And I said, this is amazing quality. Like I've seen what they sell on the outside and this is up there in quality. Have you ever thought about selling it in prison? He said, no, I've never thought about that. Because I mean, they are allowed to sell stuff that they make. They're allowed to sell artwork and that type of stuff. Hopefully that's, that's worked out for him and he's doing that. 
one of one of our biggest success stories, I will say this, is one guy that has gotten out of prison. He wanted to start his own auto body shop. That that was his goal. He had a huge passion for cars. He told us his background. He said, the only thing I remember from my dad is that he taught me about cars. And he said that he was not a good dad. He was abusive, didn't bring in a lot of money, but he knew about cars. And that's what he taught me. And that's where we kind of bonded was he would tell me how to fix cars. And so his big thing was, I want to eventually own my own auto body shop. Our YE staff came through and were like, hey, we actually know some people that own an auto mechanic shop. And we're like, you seem like you're really knowledgeable. Let us know whenever you're out. I think that gave him this hope and maybe gave him this passion to get through the rest of his sentence is that he can get out of prison, do what he still loves and do what he knows and be a productive member of society. It sounds like he's doing fantastic. He is actually right now, he's out of prison and working at an auto body shop. Zach stopped teaching at El Dorado to return to campus high school. At the time, it was only a summer program, but of course, he has since wondered if his work at El Dorado has made an impact. I have gone back and looked just because I'm that guy. I have gone back and looked just to see if anybody who has gotten out is back in there and I'm, I'm happy to say they haven't yet. So that, that, I think that's the best testimonial is that they're not back in prison. Now back at campus high school, Zach's time at El Dorado has made a profound impact on his teaching. This is what you kind of go through at a so- lower socioeconomic school is, you know, it does impact a lot of these kids. And I think unless you actually have experienced the prison system and seen it, the empathy you're showing is for that kid, but not necessarily for the parent and the family and what you now know. You know, what I now know that they're going through, it makes me 10 times more empathetic because I used to see it as a prisoner makes a bad decision that impacts them. Now I see that it not only impacts them, it impacts their family immediately and it's gonna impact their family whenever they get out. If they don't get out, it impacts them 10 years down the road. And I think it just has opened my eyes to the fact that if, if a kid's struggling, if a kid's having trouble, and that could be, uh, uh, you know, it is a viable reason. It is hard. And so I, I think it has opened my eyes to that. Teaching, it makes you feel like what you're doing is gonna impact the world. I think every person can reach back to a teacher that treated them fantastic and changed them for life. I can think of my teachers and how they've impacted me, and I'm hoping that one day, hopefully if I do my job right, my kids are the same way, and they say, Mr. Cleaver had a great impact on my life, and this is why my life turned out the way it did. And great job on that, Joey, and what a story, what a teacher. And that's Zach Cleaver. And this is a part of our Opportunity America series. And by the way, to start a YE program at your school, go to getye.org. That's getye.org. And maybe start a coffee shop with some of your kids at the local school. It's such a great idea. I run my kids to McDonald's all the time, and it's true. The line's too long, and the next thing you know, she's late to class. And I'm out three and a half bucks on a cafe macho something or another. And what a great opportunity to teach all of our kids, at-risk, middle-class, upper-middle-class, all of them, the value of work and the value of a dollar. And by the way, the work that Zach did in prisons, what a beautiful thing. And we know what Coke Industries has done with regard to prison reform in this great country. And so many things are happening 
in a bipartisan way on this issue. One of the beautiful things coming out of our country's politics is Republicans and Democrats coming together on something as important as prison reform. Zach Cleaver's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories from all walks of life here on this show, as you know. Some of the stories are inspiring, we hope. Some are pretty tough. And some, like this one, well, they're a mixture of both. Here's retired Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch speaking frankly to some U.S. Naval Academy midshipmen about what happened to him after being wounded in action. My life was being a Navy SEAL. That's all I wanted to do. I, I didn't realize the extent of my commitment to it until afterwards when I could no longer do it. And uh, the way my career, uh, as I call it, ended um, was not the easiest way to go. It really, really uh, was difficult. It was a hostage rescue mission. We were trying to rescue that young kid, uh, Bo Bergdahl, that's been in the news a bit. Couldn't see the guys. I knew there were people out there. Uh, in a hostage rescue mission, you can't just shoot people. <laughs> you got to see who's who in the zoo. It's at night. Uh, the visibility wasn't very good. And we used the dog to find those guys. And the dog found them. And the only w- way I knew that they were hostile was I saw one guy shoot the dog in the head. Um, at that point, I could see with the muzzle flash that he was armed, so I started... Uh, filling him in, as it were, shooting him. And his buddy panicked like they always do uh, because they suck. And he sprayed and uh, thank God he didn't hit the other two guys that were with me. Um, But he hit me and he didn't have the decency to hit me in the body armor that I had to wear all the time. So blew my femur out of the back of my leg, tossed me in the air and I'm in the air and I'm thinking, don't scream, don't scream, don't scream. Hit the ground. What did I do? It hurts so bad, and I felt bad for years. I felt like such a weak individual for screaming. But, man, it was powerful. At that point, I transitioned. I didn't know it, but I became an observer, uh, a witness, as it were, to my crew and their spirit and their strength. Guys had to finish the gunfight. I couldn't put my tourniquet on myself because when I tried to do it, it my femur would twist and I would scream some more, which is bad. I wasn't really useless. I was actually a hazard. Because if you got a guy that's screaming around you, they just got to throw grenades in the direction of that guy, right? It was bad. I didn't want to scream anymore. So I didn't put my tourniquet on until the gunfight was over. Two uh, people who had been to an advanced Army medic school heard me on the radio or heard on the radio that I'd been hit. And they came from different parts of the target uh, over open ground, having to shoot people to get to me. And they went to work on me. 
and saved me. I got flown out, medevaced, um, sat there with the dog at my feet when the helicopter flew us out. Um, and this is the first time where I'm in the company of other people who had gotten hurt. And I realized as I'm laying there that I'm not hurt that bad. That there were people on that plane being medevaced with me that were severely hurt. People that didn't look like humans anymore. They were wrapped up in gauze and they had hoses running in and out. These little things were etched on my hard drive. These are things that I had to deal with later. One night I stuck a gun in my mouth after I'd gotten treatment to get my leg healed up. I stuck a gun in my mouth in front of my wife, which is pathetic. I know how to use a gun. If I wanted to die, I'd be dead, right? It was a cry for help. I had become addicted to the pain meds and I was washing them down with Stoli's vodka, just a tip, don't do that, it's not a good way to go. Put a gun in my mouth in front of my wife. My wife was scared to death. She got the gun away from me. She immediately called my unit. My unit said, call the police, we can't get there quick enough. She called the police, told them exactly who I was in the world and what I've been doing for the majority of my life, and that I was going nuts. And those guys came to my house, they knew who I was, they knew I had guns and knives. Uh, they had every right to at least give me a good tasing or a beating, you know? They de-escalated the situation. They kept me calm uh, until my crew got there. My crew put me in a car, took me to the Naval Hospital, uh, where I agreed to go to the fifth floor, which is the psych ward. I was humiliated. Um, I needed help, but I didn't know how to get it. I had alienated myself and pushed myself away from people. So there I am sitting in the hospital in my purple pajamas with a towel this big so I don't hang myself. And I'm embarrassed. I was a team leader on a SEAL team. I had over 150 direct action combat missions. I'd been in a lot of gunfights. I was proud of what I had done. And now I'm sitting in the psych ward with kids working there that are just have been in the Navy a year or two that are like babysitting me. I was so embarrassed. And uh, my crew came to see me. And I was embarrassed and I didn't want them to come see me. I never once realized how fortunate I was to that point in my life. Um, quick tip, though. If you're ever in the psych ward, and God, I hope you never have to go there. Uh, don't do this. So my buddies came to see me. I'm, in, I'm a big skydiver. They bring these skydiving magazines in, and they hand them to me across the table. One of the young uh, people that worked in the psych ward came over and said, Sir, we've got to take those magazines from you. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, they got staples in them. And you could hurt people with those staples. And I said, if you think I need staples to kill everybody in this room, you're one that's crazy. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Never do that. Do not threaten the staff in the psych ward. Huh? You'll probably get a good shot, and you're going to stay there like I did a few extra days. So uh, while I sat there, my buddies had gone to work um, trying to figure out what they were going to do to me. People at my unit, uh, very senior people, uh, were involved in my personal little saga. And it wasn't like their bandwidth wasn't full of other things, like other combat missions and other things going on with other people in the unit. But they showed me their value. I could not deny that they valued me because they committed so much to making sure that I got better. The same guy who saved my life in combat, he flew me, rented a car, and drove me to this psych hospital. See, you get a lot of medals in gunfights when you save people's lives. You don't get any medals for driving your buddy to the psych hospital. That's a true commitment. Why would he do that? Because he cared about me. I had value, right? So I'm checking in 
to the hospital and they're going through my bag like I'm a felon. I'm offended by this because I'm a tough guy, Navy SEAL commando. And I look at my buddy and I said, hey, man, I'm not doing this. I'm running. There's no way. He said, well, look, first of all, you can't run anymore. (laughs) What a jerk, right? (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that, buddy. And secondly, you need to do this. You need to do this for yourself and for your family and for the rest of us that are coming down the road. And he was right. When somebody saves your life, you owe them a couple things. One, you can't disrespect them. And two, you can't make the efforts that they extended on your behalf a waste. So at that point, I realized that I was going into this hospital. It was a great thing for me. I spent a lot of time in that hospital. I think it was close to uh, four and a half months. And why it was great for me was that I realized that you don't have to be in combat to have traumatic things happen. This was the turning point for me, one of the major ones. I'm in a group session. There are professional people from the civilian world in this group session with me. And they'd all been through tough stuff. And we're going around, we're talking about these things, and we get to a young woman, she's probably 30 years of age. And she said, when I was 11 years old, two of my uncles raped me in front of my father on Christmas Eve. What do I say to that? I've got problems. I got shot in the leg on a mission I volunteered for with a group of people that I loved. And I'm feeling sorry for myself. And this young woman is in here brawling with this. What do you think she thinks every year at Christmas Eve? That was a turning point for me. Life's combat, man. You don't have to be a Navy SEAL to have things happen to you that are difficult. Your people don't have to be combat people to have things happen to them that are going to make them go nuts. So I graduate from this uh, little hospital and I go home uh, and I continue to get treatment, seek a counselor, I get retired from the service. Um, point with all of that is that I didn't want help. I didn't want people to think I was weak. I didn't want people to know that I was suffering. I didn't want to suffer. And for a long time, I wished I'd have died that night. Because, you know, nobody hates dead people, right? You don't snore. You don't cause problems. They name a chow hall after you. It's all cool, right? I didn't know what I was going to be anymore. My buddies injected themselves into my life over and over, and they, they forced me to know that I was valued. Sometimes the word stigma is used. You know, there's a stigma with getting involved in people's lives. I call it cowardice. I watched my buddies, same guys who saved me in a gunfight overseas, I watched them save me again. They pushed through it. They weren't embarrassed. They knew that I needed help. It was that simple. And they were going to patch me up again. So I hope, if you guys are ever in the position where you see that somebody's having a difficult time, you realize that maybe being embarrassed is the biggest risk if you confront them about it, but it's probably worth it. And what a story, and thanks to Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch for sharing that story. And there's a stigma that comes along with mental illness and with soldiers. Oh my goodness, how many times do you say the word, I was embarrassed? I was a team leader, and now I'm sitting in the psych ward. I was embarrassed, he said. Never once did I realize how fortunate I was. Brother, I love the line, you don't get any medals driving your buddy to the psych ward. And it's so true. My life was being a Navy SEAL. The way my career ended, it was really difficult. And so many men who fight for us, right? who fight for all of us, that's the case. He came back, and my goodness, did he have troubles adjusting. 
And it took that one girl's story to turn everything around, having to deal with being raped by uncles in front of her father. And he thought, what the heck am I complaining about? How lucky I am. I did something I volunteered for, surrounded by people I loved. And my goodness, having those good people around him to help him through this difficult time. And now he's got a mission. He has a nonprofit that has a lot to do with helping prepare working dogs for life in the working world. Navy SEAL Senior Chief Jimmy Hatch's story here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And one of our favorite movies here on the staff is The Big Lebowski. I'm going to give you a quote from that movie, because if if you've ever seen it, it's one of the funniest movies ever made. Sometimes there's a man... And I'm talking about the dude here. Sometimes there's a man, well, he's the man for his time and place. He fits right in there. And for the town of Oxford, Mississippi, that dude is a man who the locals know as Chico. I've only been Chico since 1975. My real name is Scotty Ray. I was in school at Milam Junior High in Tupelo, where me and Elvis went to school. And um, I was standing in the hallway one day with my buddy Winky Weathers, who's now the tax assessor over there for Lee County. And uh, I can't remember who it was, but somebody walked by and pointed over his shoulder at this girl and said, uh, she says you look like Chico. And she walked by and said, hey, Chico, and ran off. And I didn't understand where it was coming from, and neither did my buddy Winky. But uh, Winky said, I'm going to call you that for now. And I wasn't cool enough to know that Scotty Ray, my real name, was a really cool name. <laughs> so I embraced the Chico. I was born March 7th, 1961 in Tupelo on Jefferson Street in a house that later became the bar Jefferson Place. And um, I always dug that being born in a bar or what would be a bar. It burned down, unfortunately, about 10 years ago. I grew up in an extremely rural uh, you know, my grandparents and parents wouldn't call it poverty, but to, compared to the way people in North Mississippi live now, yeah, it was poverty. Early 60s, wooden clapboard house that my grandfather cut down the trees and made the lumber to build. And, you know, very simple wooden structure. We lived there because when my mother found out she was pregnant with me, my father left for work the next morning and has not been seen or heard from since. So she moved back into her parents' house, and uh, I grew up there. And my memories of there are trees and cattle and crops and rock and roll. My mother's two younger brothers lived in the same house. They were in high school, and they were both in bands. 
and one of them was a, a lot bigger than the other. It was called the Velvet Vultures. That's really what I think of when I think of childhood, uh, being in the countryside and being around people that liked rock and roll and went to rock and roll shows and played music and uh, liked pop culture. Earliest I can remember is the adults in the house arguing about who was the better, the Beatles or Elvis. And I also remember very clearly my uncles Bo and Dan leaving to go see the Rolling Stones in Birmingham in I think like 1965 or 66, something like that. I've got a photograph that they made from that night. Show really Brian Jones in the foreground of it. It's really cool. I remember very clearly being in Tupelo and in the back compartment of a Volkswagen Bug, that little compartment that was behind the back seat, riding in it and uh, hearing yesterday the Paul McCartney Beatles song on the radio. I remember we were driving by the Hotel Tupelo next to where Reed's Gumtree Bookstore is. I remember it like it was yesterday for some reason. My first taste of rock and roll that, was, that I considered mine was when the Archies were huge. And it was Sugar Sugar. And um, it was 50 years ago this fall that Sugar Sugar was a huge hit. And uh, I had a Archie's poster on my room, and I remember feeling sorry for kids at school that didn't have an Archie's poster. <laughs> what was it that G. Gordon Liddy said about prison? Oh, yeah, he had a hell of a good time in prison. Well, I had a hell of a good time in high school. <laughs> it took me a while to get there. I got expelled from the ninth grade in um, late 1975, and so that put me back a year. So I had to repeat the ninth grade. And by the time that in Tupelo, the high school was grades 10, 11, 12. Ninth grade was another school on the other side of town. And uh, so by the time I did make it to high school, I was with people who were in my class before I got expelled and people that I'd gotten to know for a year or so. Um, I was blessed with a lot of friends. Looking back on it, I realized how blessed I was with a lot of friends. I don't think I thought anything about it at the time. Um, my high school experience was a little bit different from my classmates in that I left school and went to work at my mother's uh, sandwich shop. Um, I graduated in 1980. I was supposed to graduate in 79, but like I said, I got expelled. And uh, for writing, uh, for sending a bomb threat to the school. And our thing was we we didn't even think they would take it seriously. The main thing we wanted to do was, I think on Quincy or something like that, some television show, we had seen them cut out letters out of a magazine, paste them together to make sentences, you know, like a ransom note. <laughs> that was our main, That was what we wanted to do, and we did it. And we mailed it to the Tupelo Daily Journal. <laughs> and it said, a bomb will go off in Carver School, uh, I think it was Wednesday, November 26, 1975, be there. And the be there was all capital cutout letters. <laughs> and sent it to... Um, and sent it to the Daily Journal, and anyway, uh, they got me through fingerprints, and they asked me about the other dudes by name, and I didn't squeal on any of them, and they they just kind of made an example out of me, which is fine. There was no point in anybody else getting in trouble. So I went to work on a loading dock, a grocery warehouse distributor called Malone and Hyde in Tupelo, and I worked there for four years so I could go to Ole Miss. Actually, I went to Memphis State, for a semester. Unfortunately for my college career, I, Springsteen had the Born in the USA tour going. And 35 years ago, 
two nights ago, I went to St. Louis for my first show on that tour, and then I ended up going to Austin, Houston, Baton Rouge, Atlanta, and and two shows in Memphis. And anyway, that pretty much did away with that. I got kicked out of Memphis State for grades. I blame getting kicked out of the ninth grade on Keith Moon. I blame getting kicked out of Memphis State on Bruce Springsteen. And now you know why you're listening to one of our own local storytellers. He goes by the name of Chico. More of his life story here on Our American Stories. continue with the life story of Chico Harris, an Oxford, Mississippi native who became a self-proclaimed Springsteen head when he started following the band on tour. And just as an added note, I was one of those Springsteen heads too. And at last count, I've seen him at least 200 times. I know. Call the therapist. Let's return to Chico Harris's story. When I was expelled from school, I went to see Springsteen for the first time, April 29th. And then um, went back to Tupelo, and I wasn't old enough to drive, but went back to Tupelo, and there were some older boys I knew that were going to, I mean, a lot older, like five years or so older, which is a lot when you're 14. <laughs> and uh, they were going to the show in Jackson like four or five days later, and I rode down there with them to that. And that was my first two taste of Bruce Springsteen. Went to my first Garcia show about a month before that first Springsteen show, Saw Paul McCartney for the first time around the same time. Saw The Who a few months before. That was when I got expelled from school, and I blame it on Keith Moon. Within a year of my first big rock show, which was Elvis Presley, which I thought I was too cool to go to, and my mother forced me to. <laughs> oh, it was fantastic. I was um, in school at Milam, Milam Junior High, where Elvis, like I said, where Elvis and I attended in Tupelo. And uh, Mom... Went to see Elvis all the time in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when she could in the 60s. For one thing, she had little kids, and he wasn't touring that much anyway, hardly at all in the mid-60s. She wanted her boy to see Elvis. We went down to Jackson. I'm glad that it was in Mississippi. And we went down to Jackson and saw Elvis in the Coliseum where the Who played their 12th show in the United States in 1965 before they played Boston and San Francisco, which is crazy. But I saw Elvis, and I... Remember, like it was last night, Joe House Rock. I remember him on stage. I can just see it clearly as anything. I, I remember the women screaming, and it was my first experience with anything like that. I knew that Ronnie Tutt was playing drums for the Jerry Garcia band that first time I saw Jerry in Memphis in March of 76. It wasn't until about five years ago that I learned that in June of 75, when I saw Elvis, Ronnie Tutt was playing drums for Elvis. So within a year... I saw Ronnie Tutt play drums for two entertainers as disparate as Elvis Presley and Jerry Garcia. Um, And I'm just the kind of person that appreciates that kind of thing. (laughs) My first experience is following a band. That would really have to be, though, and I I knew it was a thing, 
because of, of people falling. I was conscious of deadheads, and I was a Grateful Dead fan, and I knew that it was a thing. And I had a cousin in in the Gulfport named Billy Goodwin, who is um, the probably the most influential person in my life, and I knew that he had done that. And so I was I knew that that was out there and it could be done. So I wrote. I knew that I read. I guess in Rolling Stone or Cream somewhere that Springsteen would be touring for the Darkness on the Edge of Town album. And it wasn't like now. It was like a big mystery where people were playing. And I, actually, I called the record company. If I'd send a self-addressed stop novel up, they would send me a list of the shows. And they did that, a mimeograph list. I wish I may still have it, actually. I'm pretty bad about that sort of thing. But as I can see it right now, a mimeographed, 1978, Bruce Springsteen, East Street Band, Columbia Records, blah, 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 and the cities listed, and it had been typed on a typewriter. New Orleans, Jackson, Memphis, and Nashville. I had a red Bronco at the time, and a dog named Keen Tut, and a best friend named Ziggy, and who my mom knew real well. And I told my mom that Ziggy and I were going fishing for a week. In retrospect, she knew that was a lie. And instead, me and King Tut got in my Bronco and went to New Orleans and went to that show. And it was just fantastic, man. I was in New Orleans by myself for the first time. I was sneaked out of Tupelo. You know, I was on the lam. <laughs> and uh, was scared to freaking death inside that show that I was going to get caught. But the thing about it was that in, 70, in January of that year, I had gotten into the Sex Pistols in, in Memphis and through a damn back door and was way underage and you know I, there was a huge crowd outside trying to get in I just got real lucky got pulled in with somebody that was supposed to be going in and um, that taught me and during that through that show I was scared somebody's going underage get him out of here he doesn't have a ticket and then I, later on I realized with the sex pistols on stage nobody's looking at this kid from Tupelo <laughs> you know but um on that Springsteen tour at the New Orleans show, I was the same way then. You know, that, that's a runaway from Tupelo. <laughs> you know? But nobody was paying any attention to me, especially with 1978 Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band on stage. I had got the first record from subscribing to Cream magazine in 1973, and the first record was selling horrible. I think Columbia had, you know, of course, they had printed a ton of them because they were, they were really behind him and expecting him to be something. John Hammond had signed him, and and uh, it was just selling horrible. So I subscribed to Cream, and for subscribing, you got to pick between um, the first Kiss record or the first Bruce Springsteen record. And I was not, it was the first time I ever heard of him was that advertisement. And um, I had heard of Kiss and knew I didn't want that, and I liked the cover of the Springsteen record, and I thought the name was cool, and I wasn't sure exactly if that was his name if that was the name of a band or, or what but I took it and um, drove my folks crazy with it you know it was such a different sound and I didn't it was unlike anything I had ever heard and um, all the words and the crazy arrangements of the songs and the crazy instruments and it was just he was obviously what he was a 22 23 year old dude just his mind was exploding with what he had brought in since then. And that really appealed to me. And the second record, which came out in September of 73, was the first one that I bought in a store. Bought at Newsom's in the downtown mall in Tupelo. 
and I was ready to see him. You know, once I went to see Elvis and The Who and the, all those other, a lot of the other bands that I saw right then, I was on a concert going binge. Uh, you know, that, I wanted that to be my thing. I can remember opening up the commercial appeal and seeing the advertisement for Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band playing North Hall, April 29, 1976. Tickets were six fifty, and um, you know, I was, like I said, I was too young to drive, and I ordered tickets. That was a Sunday. It was in the Sunday paper, and, and um, I ordered tickets the next day by mail. You know, sent them money, went to the bank, got a money order, and sent them in. Went up there, and. It was a crowd like I had kind of imagined New York crowds were. You know, just that first Springsteen show was really exciting in that way, in that it felt like I was doing a New York thing. And um, but what what was what really to this day stands out more than anything about that show is I mean it was fantastic. I knew the songs. You know, all that sort of thing. The Born to Run album was out by then, and I knew everything he was doing well. And um, But he brought Eddie Floyd out, and who I wasn't familiar with at all. But even though I did, I was familiar with his 1960s hits for Stax, because you could not be familiar with them. But I couldn't have told you they were by Eddie Floyd. But I remember we were in close, and Bruce brought out Eddie Floyd, and he's, you can hear it on YouTube. This is the man that wrote the book. If it wasn't for this man, I wouldn't be standing here on this stage. Please put your hands together for Mr. Eddie Floyd. And Eddie Floyd sang three of his big hits with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band as his backing band. And I will never, ever forget the look on 26-year-old Bruce Springsteen's face when he had Eddie Floyd by the hand and they were singing Eddie Floyd's huge hit, which was one of Bruce's favorite songs. And I can, I can see it now, the look on Bruce's face when that was happening to him. And I understood something else about music that I didn't understand before then. And it made me feel human, more human, and it made music seem more human. And that was what, that's, was what that show was like for me. And that's probably, you know, I, like I said, I was a big Springsteen fan, but I wasn't the freak that that first show made me. Just crazy about it. Intensely, Springsteen head from the Deadhead. Uh, Springsteen head would probably be, but um, to me, you know, well, now I realize that freak to a lot of people is a bad thing. To me, freak is a great thing. <laughs> you know, I love freaks. I grew up amongst freaks, and what I mean by freak is counterculture. The Hoka here in Oxford. And you're listening to Chico Harris. And let's face it, there's a little bit of a freak in everybody who wants to just do things a little different than everyone else. And my goodness, I can just imagine him and his dog King Tut and his friend Ziggy telling the folks that they're going fishing for a week. Now that's a story. But man, what an experience to just go out there on your own and see a band you love in a strange town feeling free and he's right about music and its transformative power an african-american stack singer like eddie floyd holding hands with a white singer a white rocker from new jersey bruce springsteen there's a horn section there's clarence clemens on sax he's black bruce is white everybody's together on the same page no arguments no politics just transcendent i remember those days like well like nothing more with chico harris Right here from our little hometown of Oxford, Mississippi, here on Our American Stories. 
And we continue here with our American stories and with the eclectic life story of Oxford, Mississippi native Chico Harris. Chico is the man about town in Oxford, home of Ole Miss. Again, we're located just about an hour south of Memphis. This is where we broadcast from. It's a small town, 25,000 people and growing steadily and a beautiful place to raise a family. Well, Chico loves this place like we all do, and it shows. Let's continue with his story. I loved Ole Miss, and I don't care if they changed the name. I don't care if they named, do away with the name Ole Miss. I don't care if they named, do away with the name Rebels. I'll still keep on buying my season tickets. None of that will change my experience at the University of Mississippi, and, and they can also keep it for all I care. I really got bigger things to think about. Although, I mean, not, and not that I don't think it's important. I regret that it has all the things going on because just like when I was in school and there were Confederate flags everywhere, everybody had a rolled-up Confederate flag on the back dash of their car. And although I understood what was bad about it, I also knew these people. And, you know, and I knew that this girl that had a rolled-up Confederate flag on the back dash of her car was also dating a black guy. <laughs> you know? And, you know, I, I knew these people, and I, and I knew that they weren't doing it out of hatred, but I also understood what was bad about it. And um, when Tommy Tuberville was named coach at Ole Miss in 1995, I had a newspaper called Oxford Town, and I made it a point to be at his first public appearance front row center. And they introduced him, and, and when they asked questions for the audience, I stood up, told him who I was and that I was representing a newspaper, and asked him, what are you going to do about the Confederate flag? And he went on to say, um, you know, it's a cancer. We have to get rid of it if we're going to win football games. I mean, he was answering it in a football tense. And he said, we got to get rid of it. And, of course, that was headlines the next day in a bunch of newspapers. I was very proud about that. None of them gave me credit for answering the question. <laughs> but um, that, though, was part of my experience at Ole Miss. That led to my uh, six years later, after I graduated, Ask, being there to ask him that question because all that sort of thing was part of my experience. And I probably learned some nuts and bolts stuff about journalism, but I learned, I learned just as much as at the Hoka. The Hoka here in Oxford, it looked like what it was, an old, run-down, late 19th century uh, cotton warehouse, but it wasn't a big warehouse. It was, um, it was kind of small. It was... It was about the size of a large McDonald's, but more of a rectangular shape, and uh, maybe 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 a McDonald's and a half. And um, it was an old wooden building that um, great artists around from around here had painted murals on, and, and Charlie Chaplin was on there in Marilyn Monroe, and it had a porch and trees growing around it, and there was right across what would. There was just kind of a concrete space, kind of a no-man's land that was considered a street in front of it, but it's never had a name or anything. And right there on the other side of it was the gin, which was an old cotton gin, and uh, it had been made into a, a bar called the gin. And um, it was Oxford was such a different place then from now, and the Hoka, the Hoka had a huge impact on me as an Oxonian living here. And um, not so much so until I moved here in 85. I was real conscious of the Hoka, but not, not until I moved here in 85. Well, they had great movies. 
it was you know it was one of the few places if I don't know if there's any other place in Mississippi where you could see uh, 1900 or you could see um, not first run movies but but foreign films and stuff like the Rocky Horror Picture Show and people would dress up and it was a big event and uh, there was a little area for a sit down area for the cafe and looking back on it. Uh, Ronzo, who started the Hoka, was just extremely fortunate to get that building because it was set up great for what it was. One one side of the building, there was the, the floor was sloped so they could roll bales of cotton down it, but that served perfectly for putting in chairs and making a cinema out of it and putting up a screen, that sort of thing. There was a corner back in the in the uh, corner of the place called the Peace Corner. It's where Ronzo kept a little booth with all sorts of uh, brochures about Buddhism and um, peace. The Hoka, you know, when I, I, when I graduated, I, I went and lived in California, and I lived in Alaska, and I went to sea for a while in Alaska, and I lived in the Virgin Islands for a year and a half, and then I spent 1992 hitchhiking around Europe. And during that whole time, I was sending postcards and letters and boxes of stuff that I thought needed to be at the Hoka. I was sending them to Ron at the Hoka for wherever I was. And um, that's the kind of impact the place made on me. When I graduated um, in 1989 and moved to San Francisco, people were asking me, why are you moving to San Francisco? My stock answer was that so I can move back to Oxford. I can't move back to Oxford until I move away. And actually, what I said at the time specifically was uh, so I can move back to Taylor. And they're like, why, why do you want to move back to Taylor? And my 1989 answer was, I want to move there while it's still cool. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, boy, that catfish is still great at Taylor Grocery. <laughs> I love it. And uh, Taylor's still one of the, the best spots in Mississippi. I, I, I love it a lot. And um, I did move back. I moved back. My last address was London. Uh, I was living on the street there, but I was getting mail at 5 Haymarket Square, which is the American Express office. If you had a, if you had a traveler's check, you could get mail there, so I did that. And uh, my friend Jimmy Daniels would send me the Sunday sports sections after the Ole Miss games. And I always got a kick out of getting the Sunday sports section in London, you know, right there in the heart of, of the city and then going to a pub and reading about the Ole Miss game and then leaving the newspaper there for some Londoner to get. <laughs> I always had this dream of leaving the newspaper there, walking out, and then an Ole Miss fan walking in going, what? <laughs> the Clarence Ledger? <laughs> I mean, there's so much. I mean, Faulkner knew exactly when what he was talking about when he described Mississippi as, as the most hard place to understand, the most hard place to get a grasp on. And... Um, when I'm traveling, I always wear a Mississippi shirt when I'm out. The further away I am from Mississippi, the more determined I am to wear a Mississippi shirt every day. And that has led to um, a lot of, of meeting people, for one thing, from Mississippi that I would have passed on the sidewalk and didn't realize that we knew the same people and that sort of thing. But also has led to a whole lot of conversations to people that were aware of Mississippi but were very ignorant about Mississippi. And not that I got to educate them, but we did have some great conversations. And, um, I mean, Mississippi for me is, I mean, it's, again, it's like breathing. It's, I can't imagine. I mean, I love California. I love Oregon. I love Washington. I'm a New York City freak and have been since I was a little kid. 
um, Monument Valley is my favorite place on the planet, if not Niagara Falls. But Mississippi is like my right arm and my heart and my brain and, and everything else. Um, and I'm proud, man. I mean, I'm proud to be from the same state as William Faulkner and the same state as David Sansing and the same state as Elvis Presley and the same state as Miss Calmes. She was my English teacher at Tupelo High. Wonderful woman. I went to her funeral in August and I sat there and thought about it. Yeah, um, I mean, it was a big funeral, but I think I was one of two white people. Man, I was grateful to be pulled in and accepted and loved on at that funeral. And that was part of Mississippi. That's not saying, of course, that people can't have that experience wherever they're from. But that's mine. And I love this place. And you're listening to Chico Harris. And we'll continue with his story here on Our American Stories. conclude with the tale of Chico Harris, a local legend here in our hometown of Oxford, Mississippi, and so many of you have asked for us to tell a few more stories about us. And so we are, but not us, like the people do in this show, but the people who are around here in this town. And I've never met Chico, but my goodness, I feel like I know him already. And again, a local legend right here in our small town who loves his country, loves his hometown, and something else Chico loved with a passion was his beloved dog, Wayne. Let's continue with his story. This will be hard to get out coherently. Uh, Well, I had an accident April 5th, 1997. When I left hitchhiking for that year, I had to leave my dog, Wayne, behind and stay with my folks, which is fine with them because they... Loved him probably more than me, and uh, which was easy to do. He was a hell of a dog. I saw him the first time I laid eyes on him was he was about two hours old. I had just gotten through with twelve shows on the Born in the USA tour, and my favorite song on that Springsteen album was a song called Darlington County, and. Uh, it's my least favorite spring scene album, by the way. But um, my favorite song on, on that album was uh, a song called Darlington County, and it's got a character in it named Wayne. And uh, my friend, I was buying beer in Kroger, and I was reaching for a, a six-pack of $2.09 Schaefer. 
My friend Craig Cannon walked up. Mike's dog is having puppies. Uh, let me give you one for a Christmas present. I said, let's go see them right now. So I got the beer and got in the car, went over to his brother's house, went in the utility room, and uh, his dog had had puppies. And, uh, you know, I looked at him within two seconds of looking at him. I picked one up, and I told my buddy Ken, I said, this is the one I want. I said, you see that white spot on his head? That's the one I want. And he said, okay. And uh, so in about a month, I, I got I guess it was in January, I got him. And I, I mean, I named him Wayne that day, uh, the day he was named Wayne, within a couple of hours of being born. And I got him in, like I said, in January of 1985. And he was a good thing in a hard time because I was, I was despised with myself about getting kicked out of Memphis State, even though I thought 12 shows on the Born of the USA tour was a fine reason to get kicked out of Memphis State. I mean, I was 24 and uh, just didn't know any better. I just didn't like myself about getting kicked out of Memphis State. And I didn't have a dog. I was dogless at the time. It had been, I guess, for about a year. And when, uh, when Wayne and I teamed up in January of 85, I mean, he was, a, he was an exceptional dog right out of the chute. He was absurdly smart. I mean, he was six months old and people were treating him like he was a human and commenting on that he seemed human, that he carried himself like a human, that it, like he knew what people were saying. And, boy, he gave me, he gave me a lot of confidence in myself. It made me, made me want to do good things and to follow my muse. So he and I teamed up and we took off in my red Volkswagen, convertible Volkswagen. And he got to be pretty well known in Tupelo and even in Memphis, riding my Volkswagen with the top down and him sitting up sometimes with sunglasses on. I've got pictures of him in an Ole Miss baseball games with an Ole Miss hat on and sunglasses out in the outfield. And there was a, a deep place on a root on a tree that I kept a tennis ball squeezed into it, into the crevice, and we would go and, and I'd tell him, get your ball. And he'd go to that where that ball was hitting to get it and bring it to me and we'd throw the ball some, you know. And then uh, I would put the ball back up and stick it back between the roots. Then we walked Back to town, we stopped at Proud Larry's and, and got a slice to go. And I remember Andrea, who was a waitress there at the time, and like the other Larry's waitresses, she loved Wayne a lot. Every year on his birthday, 
they would have a party for him at Larry's and then put him a bowl of beer on the, on the floor. That day we stopped at Larry's and Andrea came out and loved on him on the, on the sidewalk and we started to cross and we got almost across when I realized that a car, a speeding car coming, a speeding car coming very fast had came over the top of the hill and I didn't see it but I could hear it well enough to know we were about to get hit. And the last thing I remember thinking is that I was between the car and Wade. Wade was right on my immediate left. And I remember thinking that maybe since I was between the car and him, he wouldn't get hit. I remember getting hit. I have a vague memory of uh, being on the sidewalk and people being over me. I have a real clear memory of being in the emergency room and being worked on by doctors. And I had bones sticking out of me from my feet up to my pelvis, which was shattered into a lot of pieces. And the doctors were working on me, and I asked... What about my dog? I remember the doctor saying, your dog is dead. And I howled. And I grabbed him by his coat. And I let go. And I apologized. And then... Sometime the next day, my hospital room, and Ronzo, my friend George, George McConnell, they were standing there looking at me and smiling. And I immediately thought, Wade, it's gone. I mean, I was in a morphine haze. But it was the first thing that just flooded my brain. It was a horrible darkness and a weight that still is, is still on me. My friend Pat and J-Bo, they gathered, they gathered Wade up and took him and buried him across from Sorority Row, across from campus, behind Willie's house, this Graceland on the top of the hill there, Willie, who owns local color. They put some stones on top of the grave. They buried him there, and I've been back every April 5th, except for the first one. I couldn't go. One year later, I couldn't go. And uh, But I've been back every April 5th since then. The city had a Wade the Doll Memorial. Proud Larry's had three nights of music. Bands came from as far away as New Orleans and New York to play for Wade. There was a Wade the Doll Memorial golf tournament. There was a Wade the Dog disc golf tournament. There was a Wade the Dog art show. Sometimes, I mean, he's, he's been gone over 22 years. Someone that uh, was a teacher at Ole Miss at the time invited me to a party and said, uh, you know, bring Wade. And of course I did. Photograph, group picture was made at the party. 
that teacher got a job, I think, the next year in Arizona and moved away. We got connected back through Facebook two decades later. And then he was going through some old pictures. Well, now look at this and sent it to me. And that's a long way of saying that kind of thing has happened several times with Wade, where somebody would get in touch with me and say, hey, I got this picture of Wade that you, that sometimes it's like, I know you haven't seen this. <laughs> yeah. And it's always such a gas to see those pictures of him, especially if, I, if I'm in the picture with him. <laughs> and I'm always smiling. And you've been listening to Chico Harris as he's laments and recalls his close relationship with his beloved dog. And it wasn't just his beloved dog. It ended up being, well, the downtown square's beloved dog. Proud Larry's is a, is a joint in town that has a lot of live music and some great, well, just normal American eats. And uh, it's where we go to listen to music. There are quite a few joints in town. You all have a place like it, I hope, if you're lucky. And a place that loves dogs, too. You can bring them and tie them up to your table and... And feed them right at your table, too. Chico Harris's story. And again, we love telling stories about our hometown, too. And we're doing that. And send your stories about your hometown to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Chico Harris's story here on Our American Stories.